The following Dharma talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota, as part of the weekly Dharma series. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. Welcome, everyone. So we've been taking a look at this book by Joseph Goldstein, Mindfulness, Practical Guide to Awakening. Some of you have been reading along. Don't feel like you have to, but it, the book is available as an additional resource. And he's going through, chapter by chapter, he's going through this very detailed talk the Buddha gave, or this collection of teachings from the Buddha on the ways of establishing mindfulness. And we're at this fourth area the Buddha described, this fourth way of establishing mindfulness, where he's saying, use these particular maps of the mind and be mindful of your mind using this map. So we just finished talking about using the map of the hindrances, this map of all the ways that mental qualities, habit energies you could say, hinder the steadiness of attention. For example, how greediness hinders the stability and clarity of the mind. How aversion and fear hinders and uh, colors the clarity of the mind, how restlessness and dullness color, disturb, hinder the mind, how doubt hinders the mind. So these are the five hindrances, greed, aversion, dullness, restlessness, and doubt. So now we're starting a new map of the mind. And in some ways it's more subtle. One of the easiest maps to learn is the map of the hindrances because they're always there hindering the stability of the mind, you know, the different habits that our mind tends to get tight around, tends to contract around, and get in a very predictable loop. Like when we're angry or fearful, our mind gets in a pretty predictable loop, and it distorts how we're seeing or experiencing the moment. Now this next map, it's called the five aggregates, the five heaps. And it's a teaching, it's a map, a way of looking at the mind, or even more than the mind, it's really a way of looking at this. So for example, if I asked you right now, giving you a quiz, your entire grade will be dependent on how you do on this quiz, and I ask you, what is this? You know, what is this, this life or this reality? Now answer it in your mind. And you notice how almost immediately what we go to, because we want to get it right, is we go to some conceptual description of what this is. So if we were going to write it down, we'd write it in terms of some story. Well, this is me being at Common Ground on Wednesday night, or it's me, this body sitting. So we, we rely on concepts to define what this is. But there's another way to know what this is. Like, if you weren't allowed to use concepts, we'd be forced to, well, what is this? Well, there's coolness being known, right? So that actual experience of coolness being known Of course, now in order to communicate it to you, I need concepts, I need ideas and words. 
but the actual experience of coolness, the air touching the skin, that's not conceptual, right? You can be aware of touching, the air touching the skin, or if you have some, your belt's too tight, you feel that pressure, that contact. You can be aware of that touching without the word touching, or without the word belly, or without the word belt. You don't actually need the concepts or the words to know the touching or the pressure or the tension or the coolness or whatever else makes up this. So this map that the Buddha used, the five aggregates, is a way, you know, we have to pick it up. We have to take up the teachings, the conceptual map the Buddha hands us, look at this, learn or train your mind to know this in terms of the five aggregates because it will change how you understand this. Like how I understand this moment as a human being depends a lot on what my mind brings to the table, you know, like the concepts it brings. And here's the interesting thing about concepts or more technically we'd call them perceptions. Like my mind has a perception of what's happening here. Perceptions, and we'll talk more about perceptions next week. It's one of the five aggregates. So the thing about perception is it either can support a more direct mindful awareness of how it is, or it can get in the way. And it really just depends on the quality or the uh, nature of that particular perception. For example, I could have the perception, right? Perception is when the mind has contact, like in this case, let's say visual contact or auditory contact, like I'm hearing something, I'm seeing something, and then the perception arises, I think I'm at comogram. That's the perception. It's a recognition or a memory or it's a recognition coming out of the past, right? It's the past having been here before makes it easy for me to recognize, oh yeah, this is Wednesday night at Kamgram Meditation Center. Now that perception can either help frame the experience so the sensitivity of the mind and body can be more directly, immediately sensitive to what it is to be here now, seeing, hearing, touching, thoughts being known, or the concept, the recognition, the perception can be used as, it, as an end in itself. I don't need to pay attention. I don't need to be sensitive because I know I'm at Common Ground and it's Wednesday night. So perceptions can either shut off the ongoing sensitivity to the way it is or perceptions can support the ongoing sensitivity to the way it is. And it just has to do with how the mind understands the experience of perception. This has a lot to do. You know, we often, intuitively, we just know that thinking's the bad guy. You know, because sometimes it's just so obvious that our thinking is causing suffering in the mind. But it's it's not really the bad guy. It's the misunderstanding of thinking, and in this case thinking as perception, right? Because perception, when I recognize something, it is on that level, like 
the mind gives the experience a name. And does the name cause the mind to stop being sensitive? Or does it allow the mind to be more sensitive, more and more sensitive? I want to just read a, a quote from Bhante Gunaratana's book. He's a well-known Sri Lankan Buddhist monk and been a teacher here in the West for a long time. He's quite old now, almost 90 maybe. And uh, he has a monastery in West Virginia called Bhavana Society. He was a, a Buddhist chaplain at American University in Washington, D.C. for a long time. He's now retired. And in his wonderful book, Mindfulness in Plain English, he says, Our human perceptual habits are remarkably stupid in some ways. We tune out 99% of all the sensory stimuli we actually receive, and we solidify the remainder into discrete mental objects, concepts. Then we react to those mental objects in programmed, habitual ways. A little later in the next page, he says, Take worry. We worry a lot. Worry itself is the problem. Worry is a process. It has steps. Anxiety is not just a state of existence, but a procedure. And this is the real turning point. I'll read a little bit more in a moment. But this is a real turning point as we train our mind to see things in terms of the five aggregates, which is just a fancy word for mind and body. So that sounds like two, and I just said five. So the Buddha, knowing that the mind is more subtle, he divided the mind up into four. Four parts. So we have body, the five physical senses, right? That's body, sometimes called material existence or form. It's translated as form. The Pali word is rupa. So you sometimes, if you're in Buddhist circles a lot, you hear nama rupa, name and form, mind and body. So you would have gotten like a B minus if you'd said mind and body as your answer to what is this, right? It's a little better than saying, I'm here, I'm Mark at Common Ground on Wednesday night, because that's all concept. But to say mind and body shows that we're at least recognizing that what this is, is the experience of mind and body, right? And then the Buddha breaks down the mind into four parts, the four more or less obvious happenings that make up what we call mind. So there's, in every moment, there's a feeling... Now, he's not talking about Vedna, or he's not talking about, rather, sensation. He's talking about feeling as uh, the mind understanding the moment as pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral. So it's related to perception, right? If I see somebody I know, I can't help but have a feeling tone associated with seeing or knowing that person, recognizing that person. Even recognizing what's happening here, there's a feeling recognizing that I'm at common ground, there's a feeling. And maybe it's a neutral feeling or a pleasant feeling or an unpleasant feeling. But you can't have sense contact, a sense experience, without a feeling arising with it. So that's one aspect of the mind. The mind is always producing a feeling. Just because you don't know you have a feeling doesn't mean you have a feeling. So there's feeling, like I said before, perception, then there's this catch-all 
category called mental formations or includes intentions or volitions or dispositions. All those, all the other stuff that arises when I see something and I have a feeling, it's like because of that recognition, anything in the sort of subconscious or anything in from my past that's been made an impression on the mind in the past, then it comes to the surface because of the particular feeling and perception that I'm having right now. So we all have, like for example, we all have, very different, but we all have have had sense impressions around dogs. You can't have grown up, even if you've never owned a dog, you've seen dogs, you've been around dogs, you've seen them on TV. So when you see a dog or even hear the, me say the word dog, you perceive that word, you have a feeling tone based on your past experiences with the sound dog, and all the baggage that goes with your experiences, that all comes up. Memories, got to get out of here if there's a dog around, you know, or, oh, dog. I'm a dog person, you know, or something like that. All of that conditioning arises, often in the form of like a disposition or even an intention, like to want to get close or to want to get away or to get angry that the person hasn't chained their dog down. You know, what that, what is that dog doing wild? Why can't I walk the streets without being harassed by dogs? I used to be a paper boy. I still have psychological scars. <laughs> People's dogs. So we have feeling tone, perception, mental formation, and consciousness. Consciousness is what illuminates the other four. Consciousness is what allows seeing an object. Like, if there wasn't consciousness, it doesn't matter if my mind's sensitive to sight or there's a sight that's there to be seen. You need something, in a sense, to ignite, right, the sensitivity with the object, it being known. That's the consciousness, the fact that it's being known. Now, don't think of these four things as four separate things. There are just four aspects of what we call mind. We can look at what we call mind one way and we say, well, there's always a feeling tone. Or we can look at it another way and we could say, the mind is constantly recognizing experiences. Even if there's a brand new experience I've never had before, the mind recognizes it. I don't know what this is. That's also a recognition. It's recognizing that it doesn't recognize it. Their mind is always recognizing. It's always having feeling tone. And... It's always drawing from the past conditioning, which doesn't exist in the past. So I say my past conditioning, but where does the past exist conditioning exist? It has to be here and now. So somehow, we don't notice this, but we're lugging along all of our tendencies or dispositions or conditioned baggage. So that's why when we have sense contact, it's a rich experience because it, the mind somehow from all its previous impressions brings meaning to the sense contacts that we have. Seeing somebody, smelling something, touching something. Like my mind, when I touch the wood on my bench here, I can't help like other 
experiences that are similar to this come to mind or just vaguely are there in the periphery. Because that's just how the mind works. And then all of that being known. That's what the mind does. So we have these five ways. And so the five, using the map of the five aggregates is a way of deconstructing our experience. And you might already get the sense that when we, in any moment, right, any moment will do because this would, this would have gotten you an A minus if you had said, you know, if I asked, you know, what is this? And you said, seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, touching, being known, form, or material, material elements, material reality, and mind being known. Perception, feeling, consciousness, and mental formations being known. That would have gotten you an A minus. A plus is not to have said anything, <laughs> but just to have dropped into the experience of these five things happening and being known. Right? Because that's actually what this is. You don't have to say out loud to know the answer. Right? The answer of what is this is, right, because it's here already. It's not that saying something is wrong, as long as you understand that when you say something, you know, that's just hearing being known. Or if you actually feel the vibration in your mouth, that's touching being known. If your mind cognizes the sound you've made when you say mind and body, that's thinking being known, you know. So it's just those elements of experience being known. And you see, the more you play with this map, so you're using the teachings, right? That's just These are just concepts, ideas, called the five aggregates, mind and body, understanding the different aspects of the mind, understanding the different aspects of the body. And you start training your mind to use the map so that in any moment of experience, you're training yourself to recognize that what this is, mind being known, body being known. There's perception, there's feeling, there's mental formations, there's consciousness. How do we know there's consciousness? You can't know consciousness directly, but because I experience for me as being illuminated, touch is being illuminated, even smell is being illuminated, sound is being illuminated. So consciousness is implied. Something is knowing. And let's just give that a word. We'll call it consciousness is knowing. So we can know things that we can't directly, in a sense, touch or point to because they're implied. Just like you can't prove to me directly there's space in this room, but space in this room is implied because we need space in order to be here. So I can, you know, I'd I'd bet on it. I'd bet there's space here, you know. But I'd be really hard-pressed to somehow, like, capture it in a way that, or define it in a way, or prove it. Because I can point to things in the space, but things need space, right? It just goes with it. So that's how we know consciousness. And this is important because in practice, we're getting very interested in awareness. 
Because by understanding these elements, this mind-body thing here starts to feel more and more impersonal, which is nice because the more and more that this, our life, any experience, feels impersonal, the mind, the heart, whatever is here, it releases attachment, grasping, or suffering, stress. So the Buddha says there is stress in human existence. That's why we show up at a place like Common Ground, because we notice either that we have stress or we're susceptible to stress, and we don't want to be. So we're curious enough right, to go into the unknown. We don't assume it's just our partner that's causing our stress or just our aging body that's causing our stress or just the way the world is right now that's causing our stress. Because if we thought that, then we'd be home complaining to our partner or you know, doing something about our body or you know, we'd be addressing our stress in other ways. But because we show up at a place like this, we have some sense that the stress we experience in life has to do with how we understand this, or more correctly, how we misunderstand this. So we're interested in correcting any misunderstanding. So the Buddha, this is what the, the, how the Buddha analyzes the problem. He says, there is misunderstanding, and it's because of misunderstanding, misunderstanding what this is, you know, we'll keep getting Ds and Fs, and how we understand what this is. And that means we're not very functional, having a mind and body. But because we misunderstand it, we keep making choices, how we are in life, how we respond to life, based on misunderstanding. So things don't work. And Buddhism, we call that dukkha, which is similar to a word that means a wheel that's out of true. You know, imagining... Some of you have had this experience where your bicycle tire gets out of true. It's like really hard to ride a bike when the wheel is even a little out of true. Or if you see someone driving down the road, I, I once hit a pothole in the middle of a Minnesota winter, and it somehow it, it didn't pop the tire, but it, it somehow strained the rubber on the side, and I got this big balloon thing coming out of the side of my tire. And it, you know, created a vibration that was really loud whenever you'd go any speed whatsoever. So this is what happens when we're misperceiving. It's like a wheel out of true. Nothing seems to work. We try hard to make our lives work, but actually the way we're trying hard to make our lives work is why life isn't working. So the, the exact way we're trying to be happy is the distortion that makes life not work very well. So then we want to go back to the drawing board, and that's where meditation or mindfulness comes in. It's like, okay, I'm beginning to intuit that the problem is misunderstanding or ignorance, not knowing the way it is. And the, and the way the Buddha analyzed that problem is we substitute a concept for the way it is. Now I'll go back to this quote from Bhante Gunaratana that I started way back when. So he's talking about worry. And he, he started to say that what this is is a process. 
this is a process. That that's a good answer to the question. What is this? That would have I'm not sure what that would have gotten you, but it it would have been a halfway decent grade. Because it's true, this is a process, it isn't a thing. We tend to think, well, it's me a common ground, but that makes it a thing. And when as a concept, as a thing, it has a sense of permanence or solidity. So to even to begin to understand that whatever this is, it's a changing, unfolding process. What you've got to do is look at the very beginning of the procedure, those initial stages before the process is built up ahead of steam. The very first link of the worry chain is the grasping, rejecting reaction. As soon as a phenomena pops into the mind, whether it's a sound, he doesn't say this, but whether it's a sound, a sight, a thought, a sensation, as soon as a phenomena pops into the mind, we try mentally to grab onto it or push it away. Now, how do we do that? Well, we name it. There's a feeling tone. You know, I'm at Common Ground. It's Wednesday night. I'm giving a talk. That's my name. I recognize this. That's my perception. And let's say um, I'm really uncomfortable giving you know, public speaking, or maybe I really like doing what I do. So there's a feeling tone. Whether I really hate it or really like it, I tend to, if I see it as a thing that's happening to me, if I define it, perceive it and define it, and use my perception to lock it down as a something, I love giving talks, I'm at Common Ground, I'm giving a talk, then I lock it down. And that sets in motion this craving, aversive feedback mechanism. Either we're craving it if it's pleasant or we're afraid and averse to it if it's unpleasant. Luckily, there's this handy little tool called Vipassana meditation or instant meditation, which you can use to short circuit the whole mechanism. So whenever our mind locks down, fixes life, through the process of defining it or conceptualizing and getting identified with the concept. Any concept. I'm a male is a concept. I'm old, I'm young, I'm liberal, I'm conservative. I don't know what I am. Even that is a concept. right? And we can get tight even around a concept like, I don't know how I feel about this thing. Even that we can get tight about. The mind can grasp any concept, but the mind can't grasp a process. So if we're understanding this mind-body thing here as an unfolding process, the mind doesn't grasp it. Only concepts have the appearance of something that can be grasped. And that's a good word to keep in mind, appearance. Things have the appearance of being set or solid. Like when I say Mark or Shannon or Amy or Uttara, when I say somebody's name, that person, and even people who don't know that person, we, we tend to fix them. Like, that's the person. I don't know who he's talking about. And it's like, you know, the mind is locked in. Or I know Amy, right? Maybe you've seen Amy. She's been around almost forever. I guess that makes you really old. <laughs> Some of you may not know. Common Ground's been around for 20 years now. Actually, 21 years. Um, but anyway, 
then it, we get locked in. And like uh, Bhante Gunaratila said at the beginning of that quote I read, then we forget everything else. We don't, because we, we already think we know there's a kind of arrogance in the mind when we've labeled something and then taken that label as the truth. But a concept is never the truth because the underlying truth is always process. Whatever this is, it doesn't take too much steadiness of mindfulness to reveal that it's an unfolding, changing process. We just need to pay attention with some steadiness and we begin to see sensation as a process. Like, for example, let's just do an experiment. Just hold your hand out in some way and it actually helps if you don't look at it. Because seeing is very seductive. It's very easy. When I look at this, it's so quick. My mind says, that's a hand, right? It's hard to see this without the concept coming into the mind. If I held up a big picture of an elephant, your mind would stop looking at this picture in about a tenth of a second because you'd know that's an elephant. You wouldn't keep looking. And it's the same thing when you look at your hand. So don't look at your hand. Close your eyes or look the other way. But feel the sensations in the hand as they actually are. Now the first thing you can recognize is how utterly useless the concept hand is. It doesn't support the knowing of sensation. And the other thing you can notice about the experience of sensation is that it's completely in flux. There is nothing static or set about the actual experience of sensations being known. In fact, it's quite ephemeral. Like, in terms of the actual experience of sensation in your hand and arm now, does it have a shape? Now, we have the image of what our hand arm looks like, but the actual sensations that are being known, does shape actually fit? So this little tiny experiment gives us a sense of how limiting concepts are. I don't know if you had the sense, but it's really a different universe. The image or thought hand is not very closely related to the actual experience of sensations being known. They're like a world of difference. So that really begs the question, what is this? And so this map, this mind-body map, the five aggregates, understanding the mind, understanding the body, understanding the mind as feeling tone, perception, formations, you know, mental constructions, and consciousness, understanding the body as seeing being known, hearing being known, touching being known, smelling and tasting being known. Understanding this in this elemental process way profoundly changes how we understand this. And see, when we understand this as a process, it's grasping in all the different ways. Grasping is just a more generic term for greed and aversion. Right? It's sort of the root of all stress is grasping, the word grasping. And it more specifically, grasping manifests as being averse or afraid 
or manifests as craving, wanting, or manifests as being disconnected or distracted or deluded, not knowing what's the way it really is. But those expressions of, you know, those unskillful expressions of greed, anger, and delusion require misunderstanding. We don't, the mind, the heart, or whatever this is, we don't fall into greed, anger, and delusion when we understand clearly the process nature. You see, though, it's not enough to know that it's a process because what we've done is just conceptualized it. Then we go, it's like, okay, now I know the answer. I don't actually have to be experiencing the process nature of the mind and body because I already know it's a process, right? Just same thing with people who have actual insight into emptiness or to the impersonal nature of phenomena. And if these experiences, these insights are very liberating, but what tends to creep in if we stop practicing is the idea that I know the way it is. It's empty. It's impersonal. But that's different than actually directly, immediately knowing the impersonal nature of the body and mind right now or knowing the changing nature of the body and mind right now. So if we're interested in the full, unshakable release of the heart, so the heart is just expressing its natural wisdom and love and ease and freedom, if we're interested in that, then the insight has to be moment by moment by moment. And the insight, the, the, the essence or the sort of kind of fulfillment of the insight the Buddha pointed to from his own experience and encouraging us to have is the insight into the changing or processed nature of this. When, we, when the mind understands the process changing impersonal nature of this, the heart lets go. No matter, we get, if we got the most charismatic person in the whole world to come up here and give us a, a rousing talk about how important it is to let go, it wouldn't really help. We could get really attached to the idea of letting go. We, would, we could get so attached to the idea of letting go that we'd follow that charismatic person forever. We'd be the person walking down the Nicollet Mall saying, let go, let go, <laughs> you know, and uh, harassing people, telling them they should let go. But what's really important is understanding that letting go, like everything else in the universe, it happens when the natural supporting causes are there. And what are the supporting causes for letting go? When the mind, or when you, you could say when wisdom, the wisdom quality of the mind, understands that this is just a changing, unfolding process, that there, the sense of separation of me or any concept is just a temporary construction we use in order to communicate with each other, when the, when the mind really understands that, letting go just happens. Attaching or grasping or struggling with conditions, with life, happens when the mind misunderstands and sees things as solid and permanent, like sees self, me, as a solid, permanent entity apart from other solid, permanent entities out there. Then, wanting to beat you up starts to make sense if you feel like a threat to me, or wanting to 
attached to you and keep you near me all forever makes sense if I see things as permanent entities. You know, we want to gather the gold, keep it close to us, and get away from all the toxic things as much as possible. So that's why the world ends up being full of struggle and violence and greed and aversion because of wrong view. But when the mind understands things as a changing process in terms of the five aggregates or mind and body, then the heart lets go. And what's left then is for us to discover. But, you know, the Buddha says something like, wisdom is what's left. Or he uses the word sangha. We use that word in all kinds of different ways. So you sometimes hear the word sangha as spiritual community. So people might refer to the common ground sangha instead of using the word community. But more specifically, sangha means the beautiful qualities that are naturally and effortly expressed when the mind isn't clinging to fixed notions about what this is. Instead, the mind is deeply grounded in the processed nature of this, isn't confused, isn't resisting the processed nature of this. And I'm not talking about theoretically. When we're talking about the processed nature, it means directly, immediately releasing into it. So instead of you or me having to do something, seeing it as process, like in a few minutes, people are going to go home. So could that be seen, that whole experience, instead of, you know, when we're a separate entity, it's somehow, I got to get myself home. You know, I got to get outside. I got to get my shoes on. I got to get into the car. I got to do this. I got, and I got to deal with all the other people going home. And it feels burdensome. It feels like a, a chore. But could it be a natural unfolding process of body and mind, of many bodies and mind, and many other natural process, processes, all of which are interacting with each other? So even if something upsetting happens on the way home, that whole thing could be part of the unfolding process. And even if you observe yourself being unskillful, that being unskillful is part of the natural process. The knowing that it's unskillful, which is wisdom, is part of the natural process. The integrating that and how, the, how that changes us, seeing that we've been unskillful, that's also part of the natural process. So just because someone calls it a natural process doesn't mean there isn't learning or change or the development you know, becoming wiser kinder in life. Let me just finish what Bhante says here, Bhante Gunaratana. Bhante just means venerable one. It's a common prefix for a Buddhist monk or a Buddhist nun. Vipassana meditation teaches us how to scrutinize our own perceptual process with great precision. We learn to watch the arising of thought and perception with a feeling of serene detachment. We learn to view our own reactions to stimuli with calm and clarity. We begin to see ourselves reacting without getting caught up in the reactions themselves. The obsessive nature of thought slowly dies. We can still get married. We can still step out of the path of a truck. But we don't need to go through hell over either one. This escape from the obsessive nature of thought 
produces a whole new view of reality. It is a complete paradigm shift, a total change in the perceptual mechanism. It brings with it the bliss of emancipation from from obsessions. Because of these advantages, Buddhism views this way of looking at things, you know, seeing things as mind-body process, as a correct view of life. And Buddhist texts call it seeing things as they really are. And that's the word, in Buddhism we have this word dhamma. One of the meanings of the word dhamma or dharma is things as they are, seeing things as they are. So I'll leave it here. It would be nice to hear from people sharing any questions, of course, from the talk tonight, but also sharing your own direct experiences of noticing moments of your life where the mind is really has become really dependent on concepts, how the mind has defined the experience, and how that attachment to concepts, ideas, opinions, really limits the mind or the body and mind, this, really limits this from being skillful, from negotiating the, you know, the inevitable twists and turns in life. And other times when maybe you've felt like you've, the mind was more in the recognizing everything as process, trusting the process nature of the mind, the process nature of the body, the process nature of everything. And so then the mind is taking refuge in the knowing of the process as it's unfolding instead of taking refuge in me, concept, this idea of me wanting to get what I want and wanting to get rid of what I don't want. So what are your own reflections or what questions come to mind from the talk tonight? Jalan? Oh, Rick. Because of this strong habit like I was talking about tonight, so Rick, if you didn't quite hear him, he was just saying, bringing up a point I had made uh, in a previous talk about one of the definitions of insight, and this is the word we use, the Pali word is vipassana. It means the mind is waking up or the mind is seeing something about the way it is, about dhamma, the way it is, that it hasn't seen before. And I said, it's always surprising. And it's always surprising because What our mind does, this is just part of having a sophisticated language. When we have an experience, even if it's a new experience, and so in a sense it's an insight, the mind very quickly describes the insight to itself. Sort of, The insight is then over, because the insight just happens in an instant where the mind sees something it hasn't seen before, and then the mind tells itself what just happened, basically, of using language. So the, the actual experience isn't that time when the mind is telling yourself, telling itself what happened. The insight comes before that. It's an intuitive insight. It's like when we were paying attention to the hand, right? And maybe we did that, you know, what maybe 90 seconds or so we were doing that. And uh, in those 90 seconds, there might have been a few instances, even less than a second perhaps, where the conceptualizing habit of the mind just relaxed a little bit and the mind had a more immediate direct knowing of sensation that wasn't confused by concept, wasn't affected by concept. So you could say a little glimpse of Dhamma, the way it is. 
And you know, we're not, the mind doesn't know what to do with those insights. So if it's just sort of a, a glimpse, a, a weak insight, the mind tends to dismiss it. You know, I didn't know what that was, so I'm just going to pretend it didn't happen. This happens a lot in life, by the way, where, you know, just because of sensitivity, we're seeing, experiencing a lot, but it doesn't fit our ideas, so we just negate it. I mean, the, there are psychologists who can show amazing things with their experiments. I'll just convey one. You know, where they're showing, usually they're students at colleges, right, <laughs> sitting ducks, so they... Come into the, you know, the psychology professor has them come in and they're showing photographs and it seems really stupid because they're, they're obvious what they are and the students say, well, that's a truck, that's a ship, that's a plane, that's a this, that's a that. And, they're, and then eventually after a few, then some of the photographs, like of a plane, will be missing like half the plane. But the person, the mind, that, that mind, that conceptualizing mind will go, that's a plane. I know it's missing the other half, or that person doesn't have a head, or that, you know, <laughs> boat is on top of a mountain. But the person projects with concept, projects meaning, gives meaning to it that isn't even there to make it fit its idea. It's not actually showing up and seeing what's there. There are many examples of this that are actually shocking when you realize it. Some of you maybe were there uh, John Kabat-Zinn, a very well-known teacher, he started the mindfulness-based stress reduction about 20 years ago. That's almost everywhere now in all the hospitals and stuff. Basically teaching the Buddhist mindfulness practice, but in a secular setting in hospitals and clinics. And uh, anyway, he was giving a talk at the U a number of years ago. And you can track this down online. And there's this uh, video clip, just a few minutes, and there are like 10 people, and they're just passing basketballs back and forth. They're in a circle. Some of you have seen this. And he tells you, you know, look very carefully, and I want you to count how many times they pass the basketball. I think it's just one basketball. So you do, you know, one, two. You're doing, you're just counting. But <clears throat> in the meantime, you don't realize this, a guy in a gorilla suit walks right into the middle of the circle, beats his chest, or it could be a woman, I'm not sure, and then walks out, right? And then so you're wa- all 700 of us are watching this video. It's projected on a big screen at the Ted Mann uh, concert hall. And uh, he asks at the end of the five-minute, ten-minute video, you know, anybody see anything unusual? And I, I'm not kidding. Out of 700 people, there was maybe a dozen hands went up. A dozen people out of 700 noticed the gorilla because... We thought it was about, right? I was one of those people. I was sort of a good boy scout. I thought it was about like counting how many times the basketball gets passed. And what did my mind do? What a good mind does. Don't pay attention to anything else. Just count those basketballs because that's what's important. Now, here's the amazing thing. (laughs) So then I think two, maybe even three more times we watched it. Each time he would give more clues. And I think like the second time he said, okay, let's do that again. And just see if you notice anything else. I didn't notice that. I didn't notice the gorilla the second time. <clears throat> Here's somebody who's been meditating a long time. <laughs> I think one of the telltale signs of having meditated a long time is you realize how little we're mindful. So here's an example. Even the third time, he even said something more like, 
see if you can see anything unusual. <laughs> something like that. But see, by now, <clears throat> the mind is just like, I know this video, you know. And it's like we keep seeing what we expect to see. This is how the perceptual mechanism works. It's very hard for our perceptual mechanism to be fresh and new. It's very hard to have beginner's mind. And life is always so new and fresh. This is what people feel when they leave a retreat. If you get, if you have the good fortune to go on a long weekend retreat or a nine-day retreat, one of the things people notice is everything's different, but they can't tell why it's different. It's different because the perceptual mechanism is different. We're experiencing life less and less through the concepts and more and more immediately through insight. And it's always surprising, as Rick was mentioning, that I said before, because insight, the mind is seeing what is fresh and new. This has never been before. And then it's gone. That's the amazing thing. So we can get that conceptually, you know, like how thin the present moment is. The past is falling away. It's literally the past, or the present rather, is literally falling off the cliff into the past which doesn't exist in any way. The past does not exist. Where would it be? Nor is there any future. It hasn't yet been created. There's just this, and it's in constant flux. So it's so amazing. So when there's insight into this, to Dhamma, the way it actually is, it's like the hair stands up. Initially, it can even be frightening for people because it's so shockingly not what the mind expects. Because the mind expects, because it's been projecting solidity and ground and me and you and this and that and good and bad. It's been living in terms of its concepts about things for a very long time. And when it realizes those concepts don't in any way capture what this actually is, it's, uh, we feel like we're in a different universe and it's shocking. You know, especially if it's sort of a big awakening. But more likely, it's just a little bit of the loosening of the screws. And we're, and just a little bit of reality, what we call like Dhamma, kind of comes in. And it's just like colors seem a little brighter. Sensation seems a little bit more alive and real. Thoughts, images in the mind seem more vivid. That's more the effect. And then the more we do the practice, the more life, every moment, comes alive. And this is why there's more and more love and compassion and forgiveness and gratitude and uh, all the wholesome qualities of mind naturally arise in the same way that all the unwholesome qualities of mind naturally arise when we're living in a fixed way. Because when things are seen in a fixed way, it just makes so much sense to defend what we think we are in a fixed way. Because it seems so solidly me, why wouldn't I want to protect it from what's not me? Right? But when things are experienced in a more fluid, process, fragile, unfolding, ephemeral way, love is what's left. Because protection... Safety doesn't make sense in this sort of relative sense of, you know, like, how can I really protect myself in any real way? Well, we can't. We can't. I don't even get to choose what thoughts I have. 
we have to end it here. Shannon, if it's quick, yeah. Right. And the, the, the key is not to stop the process. Because when you start, see, it's like the person, a lot of us had this experience growing up in families, right? Where at some point maybe because we're, we were slightly more sensitive than the other siblings and other people in the family, we started seeing what was going on. No one else seemed to see it or know it or certainly they weren't talking about it. And then what do you do with that? Well, we tend to solidify it in terms of an opinion, right? We make a concept up about it like this is wrong or I got to get the hell out of here. So remember the line from Lily Tomlin, if you're going to see the truth, or if you're going to speak the truth, you better make it funny or they'll kill you. So you have to be a little bit careful. Like in, in Buddhist terms, you know, you don't really talk about this unless people want to hear it. You know, you, you folks showed up tonight. I didn't go looking for you to talk to you about this. And so it's the same thing. People don't necessarily want their symbolic universes messed with. But what you can help them do, Shannon, is you can help them understand how confining it is. Help them actually experience. Don't tell them that they're wrong, but help them understand how confining their perceptions are, how limiting they are. And uh, model how liberating it can be to hold things lightly. Because we, what we don't want to do is meet somebody's fixed views with our fixed views. And our fixed views are based on the fact that their fixed views are fixed. And that's what we tend to do, religiously, social, uh, in terms of social issues. Yeah, more of the same. Thanks for bringing that up. That's really important. And we'll just take a few seconds to take a breath or a couple breaths together. Let go of the words. This talk, like all programs at Common Ground, is offered freely in the spirit of generosity. To learn more about Common Ground and its programs, or if you would like to donate, please visit our website, www.commongroundmeditation.org. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.